Great, this is our third week out of four. We've been looking at Voices in the Cross. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Luke 23. Luke 23. Uh, these are exactly the same verses as I've been reading. We're just looking at the whole story of Jesus dying on the cross. So often we think of the actions. What happened? You know, what were some of the things that took place? And we're trying to look this time at the words. What were some of the words that have occurred around the cross? So if you've got your Bible, Luke 23. Verse 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for are receiving the due reward of our, our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, we pray that you would speak into our hearts. We believe this is your word. We believe that you are here speaking to us today. We, we believe that you speak to us just as clearly as you spoke to those criminals. We don't want to uh, treat your word with contempt. We want to come with a sense of reverence and excitement and enthusiasm. We want to be on the edge of our seat saying, Jesus, speak to us today. Amen. I thought we should uh, just have a little bit of participation to get ourselves kicked off today. So I'm going to say a word and I just want you to repeat it to me. Simplest way of involvement. Henry. Henry. Edward. Mary, Mary. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. James, James. Charles. Charles, James, James. William, William. Anne. Anne. You're very, very obedient. I'm impressed by this. George, 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 William, Victoria, George, Edward, George, Elizabeth. Who's worked out what you've just done? Kings, that's right, the kings of England, kings and queens of England, for the last 527 years, you have just repeated to me. This was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. You got other people had that Ladybird book, you know what I'm saying? I used to look at all the pictures about kings and queens. It is my copy, I bought it from home, don't try and grab it. I guess it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the news this week, we've heard this whole story 
uh, of Prince William and, and Kate and expecting a baby and the announcement, third in line for the throne, this child. I don't know what you think about when you suddenly think, hear the word king or queen. Some of you, if you're really honest, you might think, man alive, they just take a lot of money. They've got a lot of real estate in central London. I'm a little bit jealous of their home. Nikki and I actually, as it happened this week on Monday night, watched the film. I don't know if you've seen that. We? Is it the Madonna film? It was all about Edward, who gave up the throne to become the Duke of Windsor so that he could marry the divorced woman. W.E., is that what it's called? Anyone else seen the film? No? You haven't missed a lot, to be totally honest. I guess I was quite shocked, or maybe inspired, that he loved us so much that he'd give up the whole country. Now, some people, I guess, think, man, he just abandoned his responsibility. I don't know about you. But what I I guess I'm aware is we've all got these images or connotations of kings or queens. So when suddenly we get this word, and these are the words that I want to look at this morning, king of the Jews, what do we think of? You see, these words are hurled against Jesus in some kind of irony, some kind of mockery, some kind of scorn, really. It's first said by the rulers. I don't know if you picked it up. It says the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he's chosen one. Now, I know it doesn't quite say king there, but actually the chosen one was the anointed one. It was the Messiah. And what they were really saying is, look, if you are the one that was going to come and rule and reign over us, if you are this expected king, if you are this Messiah, what are you doing up there? We're expecting a king. What are you doing? Now, they had felt threatened by him. They felt undermined by him. But I guess really, almost in his weakness, they're saying, if you're a king, what are you going to do? What about the soldiers? The soldiers also mock him. They come up and they offer him sour wine. And they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The Roman army is known for its organization, its efficiency. I used to teach history at primary school, well, along with everything else, you know what I'm saying, but I used to love getting all the kids to stand up and form a tortoise in the class. You know, if you, I mean, it's about the only sort of history I'd get them involved in. We'd all stand them in lines, and then I'd say, you've got to pretend, and we'd have exercise books, you know, they'd be like this, and the ones at the front were pretending it was their shield all across like this, and the ones in the middle were holding it over the top of them all like this, and the ones at the side, and it's almost like, this is our tortoise, and we're marching like this because we're in an army. That's what the Romans were known about, weren't they? They were this efficient, aggressive army. So they insult him. And they say, you're a king? I don't know of a king that dies naked in weakness. I don't know of a king who's humiliated and reduced to nothing. And then there's Pilate. Pilate is the one who has this inscription written. This is the king of the Jews. You see, again, what used to happen is that if you were going to be crucified, often you would be crucified for a certain reason. And if you had that reason, it would be written out. And the idea was that when you were walked to the place of your death, it was carried in front of you. It was meant to put other people off. It was meant to say, hey, if you start doing this, you're going to die. Because I'm in charge and we punish people that do that kind of stuff. 
I mean, we wouldn't have that kind of thing now. But that's what this was. And this inscription, which I find fascinating because, you know, even this morning, if I asked four of you what have I preached on, I'd get four very different answers. Because actually we've all sat here and we've taken in different things. And, and some of you already, you're away with the fairies and some of you are right clued in, you know what I'm saying? Some of you, you would give four different stories. You get four different stories in the gospel. But what I find fascinating is all four report that he's the king. It says in Matthew 27, they put this charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It says in Mark 15, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It says in John 19, 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It's almost like Pilate, he's the ruler of this place, this this Roman uh, empire. I mean, they were aggressive. Very aggressive. You know, if, if you were part of the last empire, sort of the last ruler, the last Caesar, and, and the new one came into power, he'd kill all the friends off. He'd kill all the family off. Why? Because there's no threat against me. I'm in charge. Might is right. You know what I'm saying? It's playground bullies in charge of the country. It's that kind of thing. Biggest fist rules. Pilate was like that. And it's almost like he's saying to the Jews, this is your king. Look what I can do. You want to rebel against me? I'll hit you and I'll hit your heart. Just back in your place. I find that this whole, these words that are thrown around, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Do you know, and, and if you read in Matthews, and, and I know that we've been looking at some of the things in Luke, it's not just words, it's a whole drama. You see, some of you know your Bible, but if not, just flip back just for a moment to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 And verse 27, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It says this, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him and led him away. Flogging was standard practice before you were crucified. Humiliation like this wasn't. You see, what they wanted, it's almost like the whole irony of the cross, is they took these spikes. Some have said it was like... 15 to 20 centimetres long, wove it into this crown of thorns, rammed it upon his head. Hail, king of the Jews. There's just this mockery, there's this irony, isn't there? I don't know about you, that's not the way I think of when I think of a king. I'll be honest, um, was it last year, mother-in-law paid for some tickets and our whole family went up and looked around Buckingham Palace. I, I found it fascinating, I'll be honest. You know, you get one of these inside tours and you look at the gold and you look at how elaborate it is and you read the history and you look at all these statues and you think, that's what I think of when I think of a king or a queen. I think of royalty, I think of richness. 
I mean, I don't know if you've been into Buckingham Palace Garden. I've not been invited for a garden party, you know what I'm saying? But uh, you, you walk out the back and there's this huge, great expanse of this manicured lawn. But that's what the king or the queen has. You know what I'm saying? Servants that just make it look pretty at taxpayers' expense. I'm not going there, but that's what the king or the queen has. But what about this one? There's almost this picture of a king that is hung upon a a cross, naked, ashamed, spat upon, beaten. They throw out these words, king of the Jews. Can you almost sense the irony? Can you sense the sort of, I mean, it's just total mockery. Now, I think we just need to roll back slightly and understand why the king was such an important concept. Uh, I think there are human kings throughout the Bible. I think if we wanted to try and get the whole picture of the Bible rather than just uh, focus in upon the cross, I think you can say that there are many great kings in the Old Testament. David might be one that you've heard about. David who wrote lots of psalms. I mean, he was a, a king that loved God. He was one with God's own heart. His son Solomon was considered another great king, the wisest man in all the earth, but also pretty rich. I mean, golly, he really was wise, wasn't he? Because he asked God for wisdom. I might have asked for gold. And God knew he was so wise, he gave him both. What we know about the kings of the Old Testament is they were chosen by God. They were not to be a foreigner. They were not allowed to collect horses because they might be tempted to trust in their own strength. It's funny because collecting horses now, we might be (laughs) tempted to become a turf accountant or something. You know what I'm saying? How could I gamble? How could I win? It wasn't about that in those days. It was like the more horses you had, the bigger the army, the more likely you were to think, I'm okay. They weren't allowed to collect wives. I mean, that might seem a bit of a bizarre thing to us. Obviously, Solomon made that mistake. The idea was you collected wives and you'd leave God. Solomon made that mistake. They weren't to accumulate wealth. This was the the, the rules of being king in those days. You were to write a copy of the law for themselves. They were to know and obey the law. This was the picture of a human king in the Old Testament. The king was appointed by God to serve the people. I find it fascinating because I think Jesus would fulfill all of this. Chosen by God, didn't trust in his own strength, but looked to his father. He wasn't accumulating wealth. He didn't just write the law. He was the law. He knew and obeyed it and fulfilled it completely. And yet what I really want to say is this whole thing was a tragedy in the Bible. You see, that the whole thing of human kings was not really the way that God wanted to go. And some of you will know the Bible, and you know this, and, and, and if not, you can look it up at home. It says in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, there was a prophet, Samuel, who led the people, and he was, he was distraught because the Israelites had said, we'd really like a king like other nations. And Samuel said, no, no, why? Don't offend God, because if you ask for a king, you're saying, what? God is not our king. 
And you see, this was the big thing. It's almost like they were rejecting God as king. God has always been considered as king in the Bible. This started, you could say, with, um, when they crossed the Red Sea. Moses' sister, Miriam, it says she grabs up her tambourine, she starts dancing and celebrating. And what she's really saying is this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. It's in Exodus 15. It's almost like God is the king. He's the eternal king. If you read the Psalms, and sometimes they're really good because they help us when we're down, and sometimes they just lift up our eyes. And one of the themes of Psalms is this, God is king of all the earth, Psalm 47. What it's saying is, hey, we serve a God who's king of all the earth. It says in Psalm 95, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Even the prophets used to take this whole theme in the Old Testament and say, hey, look up, look up, God is the eternal king. Jeremiah 10 verse 10 says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. So we come back to Jesus. And I think we've got to try and understand, what what are they saying about Jesus being the king? Is this a new thing? Is it suddenly that we've got to the cross and they, they start sarcastically saying, call yourself a king? I would suggest this, that when Jesus first came, and we're thinking about Christmas right now, he came as a king. He claimed to be a king. He was recognized as a king. Now again, if you look in Matthew, uh, you know, so we, we are flicking around a little bit. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, so it's telling you about his history, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, to us, we just think, well, they're two old boys a long way back that he's making good connections with. But for the Jews, and Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, for the Jews, they would have suddenly thought, ah, David, Abraham, what do I know about those? Well, what I know about Abraham is God promised him, out of your line will come kings. It says that in Exodus 17, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. So Jesus, his history is Abraham and David. His history is, oh, there's going to be kings here. What about David? Well, we know that David was this humble um, shepherd boy that God took a hold of. And that actually, when you know, he, he's marveling, isn't he? God, that you would take a hold of me. And he's almost like lost in worship, a bit like us this morning. You get lost in worship, and God speaks back bigger things to you. And God speaks bigger things to him in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made a sure foundation forever. Your throne will be established forever. So David was promised this eternal kingdom. Abraham was promised, actually, from your line, kings will come. And where do they start? So when they announce the birth of Jesus, they say, hey, you come from David and you come from Abraham. There was this sense of, wow, he's going to be a king. You see, this had been prophesied right throughout the Old Testament. It's not a new thing. Another thing that we often read at this time of year, which I I really enjoy carol says, I'm not knocking them at all. Let's be frank, you probably go to Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And we can think, oh, isn't that cute? And we think about this baby. For us, the child is born. But then what it goes on to say is this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. 
You see, I would say this. When Jesus came, you know, it wasn't like a private hospital in London. Oh, look, we've got a possible future king coming or queen. You know, it had been shouted throughout history. This Jesus will be king. This Jesus will be king. Matthew starts the book off by saying, he's born of David and Abraham. He's king. He will be king. Luke, now if you know, Luke was written generally for a Gentile audience. That's non-Jews. That's how the Bible sees it. It's a Jews, people of Israel. He also brings this theme right across. Because when the angel comes to Mary, see you've got a whole Christmas story in as well as the cross this morning. When the angel comes to Mary, she says this, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It says in Luke 1.33. You see, right in the Christmas story, which is the birth of Jesus Christ, they are declaring loud and loud and loud and loud, he's going to be king. Jesus will be king. In fact, in Matthew, and he records about the Magi, we call them wise men, don't we? Bringing the gold, frankincense and myrrh. What happens? They follow this star, don't they? They get to this place and they think, we're not quite sure where we're going. So they go and ask the king, in Matthew 2 verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and we have come to worship him. So it's almost like the angel says to Mary, he's going to be king. The wise men, the magi, turn up and say, where's the king? I really appreciate the fact that Trisha is investing some time looking up my family history. She loves all this kind of stuff. I find it interesting too. Apparently corn Ford doesn't go back forever, but corn foot does. So, you know, if it slips like that, we'll find out. I know she was chatting to my dad when he was here, and I, think, I can't remember, a couple, two, three hundred years they've gone back. It can be interesting trying to find out about your surname. What does it mean? Where does it go? Jesus' surname said something. It wasn't just Jesus Christ. He didn't just take that from his mum or his dad. Christ wasn't like Cornford, you know what I'm saying? Christ was this, anointed one, Messiah, king jesus came to claim jesus christ i am jesus the king do you know in the gospel of luke alone it is mentioned 43 times about the kingdom coming it is a recurring theme as you go through this gospel it's even like jesus is sat down he's tired and exhausted the disciples say let's just give him some space keep the kids away jesus says no no let him come why because the kingdom belongs to them. You see, this was a referring thing. You know, it's almost like the disciples. He said, look, I can't stay here. Why not? He said, because I've got to go and take the kingdom. I'm going to preach the kingdom. What's he say to his disciples? Come here. What do I want you to do? I want you to go and take the kingdom. There's this whole understanding. Healing was a sign of the express kingdom coming right here, right now. When he tells them how to pray, what does he say? Your kingdom come. I believe that Jesus was totally aware that he was a king. I don't think Jesus even came claiming to be king of the Jews. I would say Jesus is more than king of the Jews. I would say he's king over all. He is Lord of all. Why do I say that? 
Because Matthew 28, when it sort of sums it all up, it says this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king of the whole world. He is the king of the universe. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Revelation, I was going to say, tells us the end of the story. But I believe that is error. It's not the end of the story, it's the beginning of the next story. What it tells us is like is, is heaven. I don't think heaven's the end, it's the beginning. You know, it's almost where it's going. But it says this in Revelation 19, verse 6, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So this f- voice at the cross, do you get where we're going? You know, it's like, are you the king? Yeah, actually all of history said I was the king. All of my life I've claimed to be a king. Now maybe you've misunderstood what kind of king this is. And I would want to stop and ask us a question. Have we misunderstood the kind of king Jesus is? Have we really thought about it? We live in England, so I'm trying to use our, our, our monarchy as an example. I'm really not anti the Queen or anything like that. The danger is that we can, we can have a monarchy that it feels like is there for state occasions. Feels like rolls out every so often, looks good, bow, curtsy, but actually, do we really, does she make any difference to our lives, you know, my government, you know what I'm saying? And I sometimes wonder if we approach God a bit like that. I roll him out on occasions that suit me. I get him out and occasionally bow or say something that I feel is appropriate at the time, but then I shuffle him away and he doesn't affect me. Do we get a bit confused by this naked man upon a cross? I think, well, that's not really the king I was expecting. It's not really the king I want. Are we a bit like the rulers that think, he's not quite performing how I wanted. Never mind, I shall get on and lead my life my way. We're almost a bit like Pilate and think, golly, weak, useless. I know he's in charge. You see, I think that if we really understand Jesus as a king, it should make a huge impact upon our life. I want to suggest five ways in five minutes, and then I will wrap up. I think this, if Jesus really is the king, we need to obey him. The king rules He is the boss. He does know best. Can I encourage you all, whatever your dreams or aspirations for 2013 may be, read the Bible. Now, you know, I I know I could get the throne of being legalistic here. I've got to be so careful. Go on, just call me legalistic. How about read the whole Bible in a year? How about, actually, this is what the king says. And maybe if I just took four chapters a day, maybe if I had it on my phone and I was commuting, I could read four chapters a day. I could suddenly think, well, you're the king, and I want to hear your words. I want to be inspired by what you say. I want to live. Hey, this says no sex outside of marriage. Um, Do I agree with the king? Is he really the king? What about when his spirit is inside of us? And he prompts us, do we do it straight away or do we ask for a second opinion? You just clarify that one. I would say if he's the king, we need to read the word, be full of the spirit. 
We need him to be in charge of us. I would say if he really is the king, how do we step up our intentional discipleship, following after him? Well, he makes it very clear. I think there's three ways you can do that. You can pray, you can fast, and you can give. And what that says is, you're the king. You're the Lord, you're the boss. Hey, praying expresses my dependence upon you. Fasting, I'm giving up food because you are more important. Giving, I'm trusting you with my first fruits, not what's left over at the end of the month. When we take the offering at the end, I haven't forgotten John, thank you. You know, there's this sense of, it's a, it's a, you're the king. I honor you. Obeying. That's one way, I think, being a king makes sense. The second way is how do we lead? How do we lead? You see, Jesus sets an example, and I think this is what threw a lot of people. You see, nowadays, people try and lead out of self-preservation or insecurity or even entitlement. This is my badge. Do as I say. It says in Mark 10, Verse 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, what I think is really interesting, even in this whole picture of the cross, is this, I know you're not really a king. Well, actually, for the good of the subject, it took the king to the cross. But I think he did that for them, not for him. You see, I think that's the kind of king that we follow. So I think if you're in any kind of leadership, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's being a parent, whether it's a boss at work, how do you lead? I think Jesus models leading with humility. I think it means leading by serving, by giving, going the extra mile. I think we could take that from our king. It's not actually the one that people come and throw in rose petals in front of you and say, wow, son of God has walked into my life today. Actually, oh, thank you for a coffee. Why did you make me a coffee? Oh, you're a Christian. You know what I'm saying? I think the way we lead, the way we serve comes across. Third thing, I think if Jesus really is the king, I'm asking you that question, they've thrown it at the cross, they were sarcastic, I believe he is, then I think we need to live a life believing for power. We need to have a life of faith. You see, as we go into 2013, what happens here is not down to us, it's down to him. It's not down to clever marketing or hard work or past experience, but we're confident in our king. We're confident that our king has been building the church for the last 2,000 years. We're confident that our king wants people to come to know him and has been winning people for 2,000 years. We are confident in him. We're confident in the one who says he can do the impossible. With man, things are impossible, but not with God. And so I think if he really is the king, I look at myself, guys, then I think I've got to start believing for some of the impossible, haven't I? The danger is I can live my Christian life just being a nice person doing the possible. Well, does that mean I'm still relying upon the king or I'm just trying to be a nice person? The fourth thing, I couldn't think of a a word here. I can't even remember which one I stuck up on the slide, to be totally honest. The fourth impact that Jesus invite. I kept going around. I thought share. I thought invite. I thought herald. I thought proclaim. They're all sort of words that I would think about in terms of a king. You see, the fact is that we genuinely believe that that God became man, that he didn't just do it in a, a long weekend, that he lived here for 33 years, a perfect life, died for us, rose from death, and now offers us unconditional forgiveness if we will say sorry. 
Now, I think, therefore, we need to be those that are advancing that kingdom. I think that is part of what we're called to do. I think we are caught up as a soldier to advance the kingdom of God. So suddenly, when we start saying, hey, would you come out leafleting? Let's be really frank. What we're really trying to say is, would you pray around the area? That's what it is. Why don't we put leaflets in the newspaper and just get them delivered like that? Because I tell you, we will pray. And we will get a heart for what God has a heart for. So I go, I've been going out an hour and a half every Saturday leafleting myself. And, you know, I just come back and think, God, there's so many people here that need you. And I pray up and down the road, and I think, God, you soften my heart. And I tell you, I think a part of going out in January is what God will do in us. Saying, actually, will we go and advance something here? Will we be involved in something here? I think this is an advancement of the kingdom. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, says this, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered it is a command to be obeyed. Oh, he's really the king of my life and he commissions me. Is it an option to be considered or a command to be obeyed? I've never heard of this guy, but I found it a great quote. Curry R. Blake, maybe some of you know him, might be a relative of yours. It says this, If your gospel isn't touching others, it hasn't touched you. You see, we are soldiers of a king who's asked us to advance a kingdom. And if we're not advancing it, it's not touched us. I find that really humbling. I think, oh God, what have I done seeing your kingdom advance in the last year? And if I've not, then has it not touched me? Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers who came out of London, led a church, I think it was, was it 19 of 2000 in central London, he says this, someone asked, will the heathen who've never heard the gospel be saved? If they've never heard the good news, will they be saved? I mean, sometimes we get those kind of questions, don't we? And I sort of think, how do you answer a question like that? Spurgeon, being a very wise man, says this, it is more a question with me whether we, who have heard the gospel and failed to give it to those who can't, have not, are saved. So he's saying, are they saved? They've not heard about it. He says, Look, I'm not worried about that, I'm worried about you. If you've heard the gospel and you don't give it, are you saved? I mean, it's a huge provo provocative statement to us. David Livingston, the missionary who went to Africa, said, sympathy is no substitute for action. We serve a king who has an advancing kingdom. And it's almost like the king comes and says, okay, the commission's for you, for you. Yet yeah, you're in with us now, it's your third time. It's for you. You know what I'm saying? We love having you here. This is what the king's about. What's the fifth thing? The fifth thing that I would say, Jesus is king, then surely it should stir us to worship. John Piper says this, many would know the quote, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. You know, we want to reach people, actually it's like they come and worship him, not ultimately so it makes this room full. It is genuinely that they bow the knee before him. You see, I think if we stop and fully understand who the king is on the cross, then we'd live lives of worship. When we understand that he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings, that actually this dying naked man, 
humiliated upon a cross that they hurled the insult at is the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It will cause us to worship. I don't know how well you know the words to handle as Messiah. But the hallelujah chorus you know, is basically King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. I find it fascinating that this guy who's dying on a cross is now heralded. And you could look it up on YouTube, you know, and they start singing it. And when people, you know, they go, hallelujah, hallelujah, people just start standing. And you could just think, wow. Now, they could be mesmerized by the music. I appreciate that. I think they're mesmerized by the king. That's what I'd like to believe. And that they're singing their hearts out about this king. But I tell you, that is nothing compared to that one day. You see, there will be a day when it says every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. What? That he is the king. You see, it says in Philippians 2, 8 to 11, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, it's, it's like these words that we've been looking at. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it could be fascinating. We can listen to the voices of the cross and there could be some confusion. King? But actually when you look at scripture, you say king. I know that many of us would have heard of this before. I still find it inspiring every time. And so I know that um, Josh is just queuing up a video. A guy was asked to pray. Come to church and pray. And he just starts praying about Jesus as his king. And even if you've heard it, the words will come up here and you just think, wow, that is the king that was on the cross. That is the king that we gather together to worship.